X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff from Portland, Oregon, and it's an honor to do this. It's Thursday, October 29th, and it's almost the end of the fun drive. By becoming a member, by being one of the listeners of The Local who makes a gift, maybe giving a little more than you expected, you can help us keep this thing going and help champion this kind of independent voice and media bring you content that reflects the issues you care about that are important to our community. You can help us professionalize, get to the next level. If you can, please do call 503-233-X-RAY. It's 503-233-9729. You can also go to xray.fm slash donate. Tell them the local sent you. X-RAY. Today, back in the day, October 29th, 1929, the bull market of the Roaring Twenties came crashing down on a day that would come to be known as Black Tuesday. Around 16 million shares were sold on Wall Street that day, erasing billions of dollars, bankrupting investors, causing banks across the country to fail. The precise cause of the stock market crash is a subject of great debate. One cause was overconfidence. Stocks at the time were worth a lot less than their listed price, creating an asset bubble. In addition to that, investors and everyday people alike were freely borrowing money. Meanwhile, farmers were struggling to make ends meet as the country moved from an agrarian age to an industrial era. And when the economy showed some signs of shrinkage and there had been no FDIC invented yet, investors panicked, led to mass sell-offs, runs on banks. Although stocks briefly improved in 1930 and perhaps the most famous dead cat bounce, Black Tuesday would eventually be followed by the Great Depression. By 1933, nearly half of all American banks had collapsed. About 30% of America's workforce was unemployed. To put it in perspective, between 1929 and 1932, worldwide gross domestic product fell by an estimated 15%. By comparison, from 2008 to 2009 during the Great Recession, GDP fell less than 1%. Today, back in the day, October 29, 1942, Bob Ross was born. Bob Ross served 20 years in the U.S. Air Force, where he often had to be, and I'm quoting him, the mean, tough person. He hated being mean, and after he left the military, he vowed never to raise his voice again. Ross retired from the Air Force in 1981 after his art sales exceeded his salary. He studied under German painter Bill Alexander, whose antiquated painting style known as wet on wet allowed him to produce complete paintings in under 30 minutes. Eventually, Ross was convinced to strike out on his own, and his PBS show, The Joy of Painting, aired for the first time in 1983. It ran for 11 years until 1994, a year before Ross died due to complications from lymphoma. Ross remains a cultural icon. My nephew loves the guy. Reruns of his shows are still aired throughout the world. The Joy of Painting Marathon on Twitch reached 5.6 million viewers. And this year, the BBC reran episodes to help people get through the lockdown. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. We'll have an interview with Democratic candidate for Secretary of State Shamia Fagan, and I'll turn it over to Emily Gilliland for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. X-ray. And now it's time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. City commissioners in Portland have passed a resolution on Wednesday that puts restrictions on the reach of federally deputized officers. In September, ahead of a Proud Boys rally and anticipated counter-protest, 56 law enforcement officers received federal deputation. This allows them to charge anyone they arrest with federal crimes. Federal crimes often come with more severe penalties than state crimes for which local police make arrests. On Wednesday, the city council unanimously passed a resolution that aims to restrict how those officers operate. This includes barring them from making arrests on federal crimes. 
The resolution states that all Portland Police Bureau members stay under control of the city and it prevents them from taking orders from federal agents. Your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority has reported that as of Wednesday, there are 424 new cases of COVID-19 and seven new deaths. This brings the total positive case number of COVID-19 to 43,228 and 671 total deaths. In COVID news, a senior Oregon health officer dressed up as a clown to announce the latest coronavirus death toll. Claire Posh, a senior health advisor for the Oregon Health Authority, wore white and red face makeup, along with a red tie and a polka dot shirt in the somber video announcement. In the video, after announcing the new case numbers and number of deaths, Claire turned to her fellow senior advisor, Shime Sharif, who was dressed up in a cuddly animal onesie. Sharif then explained that the pandemic is reshaping how Halloween is celebrated, but it can still be spooky and fun. The outfits for the video, which has since gone viral, was apparently inspired by the Japanese cartoon My Neighbor Totoro. The video was recorded on October 16th and went viral on Tuesday after it was shared by Samantha Swindler, a journalist at the Oregonian, who called it, quote, an absolute nightmare. Matt Choi, co-owner of Choi's Kimchi, was fatally stabbed in his southeast Portland apartment building early Sunday morning. He was just 33 years old. Police say that the crime occurred around 1.56 a.m. on October 25th in the 300 block of Southeast 12th Avenue. Choi was treated by medics on the scene but later died from his wounds. A GoFundMe campaign has been started by David Jin with a $10,000 goal for funeral expenses. That fundraiser quickly met and exceeded that goal and raised over $30,000 by Wednesday morning. Organizers for the campaign have said that the funds will be used to pay for funeral expenses and surplus will go to a charity in Choi's name. Currently, no suspect has been named in the attack. But a statement on the GoFundMe page says Choi was killed, quote, when a stranger broke into his apartment while he was asleep and took his life. Portlanders held a vigil on Tuesday night in downtown Portland in memory of Walter Wallace Jr., a black man shot and killed by police in Philadelphia. More than 100 people attended the vigil held on the steps of the Justice Center. This is the site where many demonstrations have taken place over the last six months. At around 7.30 p.m., the crowd held a moment of silence and sang, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Wallace, age 27, was shot after a confrontation with police in West Philadelphia on Monday when officers responded to a 911 call. Wallace, whose mother was with him, was holding a knife. His mother also told officers that he has mental issues and attempted to shield her son and keep him away from the police. Police officers ordered Wallace to drop the knife. He failed to comply and began walking towards them. Police then shot Wallace more than a dozen times. On Tuesday night in Portland, a group of at least 50 people gathered at King School Park in Northeast Portland. Around 10 p.m., the group began marching along Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard and Northeast Killingsworth Street. The group gathered at Arbor Lodge Park in Northeast Portland and silently marched to Portland City Commissioner Dan Ryan's house. There they chanted, Dan Ryan, don't be a villain, defund the Portland Police Bureau by $18 million. Dan Ryan is set to hold a pivotal role in deciding on the proposal. This proposal would cut an additional $18 million from the Portland Police Bureau. Portland restaurants are winterizing their outdoor dining spaces. 
Many business owners are seeking to get creative to allow customers to enjoy outdoor dining through the pandemic. One business, Olympia Provisions Public House, expanded its seating into their parking lot earlier this summer. The owners have since rented a tent and heaters to cover tables for the winter months. Other businesses have received street or sidewalk permits through the city's popular Winter Healthy Business Program. This includes Silver Dollar Pizza on Northwest 21st Avenue, River Pig and Two Wrongs, and Papi Chulo. Popular joints on Northwest 13th Avenue in the Pearl District have installed covered enclosed tents. These tents have at least one side open and have heaters and festive decorations. Other businesses have also been adapting to the pandemic and have installed temporary structures in place. They hope that despite the cold, Portlanders will feel excited to eat out and weather the cold. And finally, good news. On Tuesday, Oregon, Washington, and Nevada joined California in a vow to put together a panel of doctors, scientists, and health experts. The group has vowed to work together to ensure a safe and effective distribution of COVID-19 vaccine available to everyone, especially communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. The review group will evaluate plans for vaccine distribution once it becomes available, and they are discussing how to prioritize vaccinations. Oregon previously joined forces with California, Nevada, and Washington to coordinate reopening efforts in the Western States Pact. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Shamia Fagan, current Oregon State Senator and civil rights attorney, is running as a Democrat for Secretary of State. Senator Fagan talked with me, Emily Gilliland, about what's at stake in this election, her preparations for the role, and teaching about democracy. Thanks for joining us, Shamia. Good morning, Emily. Why this role is a next step in your career? Well, I've been working on issues relating to the Secretary of State's office since I first join the legislature. In fact, the very first bill that I was ever a chief co-sponsor of my freshman year with now Treasurer Tobias Reed was to create the Office of Small Business Assistance in the Secretary of State's office. Mm -hmm. And that same session as a freshman legislator, I stepped foot in that office in the Secretary of State's office for the very first time with folks from the then bus project now called Next Up to map out a path to passing automatic voter registration, which we did two years later. I've helped lead the fight on entering Oregon into the National Popular Vote Compact, including with Republicans over the objection of the three most powerful Democrats in the Senate. We passed that with bipartisan support and then most recently passing prepaid postage on our ballots. But this year in particular, our democracy in in Oregon in particular is under attack. We have the president out making absolutely bogus claims about voter fraud and vote by mail. And I think that in Oregon, we need a person who is an unequivocal champion of voting rights and ballot access. And that's why I'm running for this race. What have you learned about Oregon through your campaigning? Well, I've, I've learned how much I miss being able to physically be out in all 36 <laughs> counties. You know, when I first got in the race, it was shortly before spring break for my kids, about a month or so before spring break. And I was planning this big trip. We had planning to get an RV. I told the kids we were going to visit all 36 counties. And then that's when the coronavirus shut everything down. So I look forward to getting out into all 36 counties 
being from Wasco County myself, having lived in Marion County and uh, my family, my second home right now being in Umatilla County, I certainly have in my personal life uh, for the last several decades spent a lot of time throughout Oregon, but I'm looking forward to getting out and representing the entire state, and I miss getting to see those incredible landmarks and the, really the, the things that the community is the most proud of by visiting folks on Zoom through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Right. And we talked to you back in March, March 21st, actually, and so it was right after the state shut down and you were thinking about the the loss of that RV trip and how you were going to shift your your campaign. Uh, now, looking at the responsibilities of Secretary of State and, and what has happened in the last several months, have your priorities changed at all? The priorities haven't changed at the high level. I think the most important job of the Secretary of State is the Elections Division. But mm-hmm. when I step back from the particular duties, I see this role as making sure that government works for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is most people, when I first got in this campaign, Emily, I realized that most people have no idea what the Secretary of State does or they have a piece here or there. And so I always like to start at that basic level, making sure the government works for everybody, running elections that are fair and secure, auditing state programs and revenues to make sure they're making a real difference in the lives of people who need them most, conducting public records to make sure that the public's business is done in public and and putting in that accountability. As I mentioned, running the Office of Small Business Assistance. And I believe because of COVID and potential, potential delays in the Census Bureau reporting, I think it's very likely the next Secretary of State could be very involved in redistricting. And so mm. for me, the priorities haven't changed, but the approaches that you might have to take to fulfill those priorities, right? COVID is something that is making, um, is, is really exposing some of the ways in which our public programs don't work for everybody. So I think an audit of our emergency response all across the board is going to be really, really critical, not only to deal with the next pandemic, but to deal with this pandemic, because this is not, you know, something that's just going to go away suddenly when there's a, a vaccine. This is something we may be dealing with for the years to come. And so how do we make sure that we don't leave Oregonians behind in this pandemic? Mm-hmm. And many of our listeners would be familiar with the Secretary of State's role in elections and maybe even as the, that lieutenant governor function can you speak a little bit to the auditing function? Because I do think that's an important role that the Secretary of State will play, especially when we look at the impact that uh, COVID is having on the nonprofit sector and small businesses across the state. The audit function is the most powerful tool the Secretary of State has to make sure that our policies reflect Oregon values. Mm. And You know, I know firsthand the impact on families when public services fail, uh, like the broken healthcare system and addiction recovery system that left my mom battling addiction and being absent for much of my childhood, the housing crisis that left my family, both with my dad who raised us as a single parent and my mom being pushed in and out of homelessness. But I also know what's possible when public services work like the public schools in Oregon, in Wasco County, in the Dalles and Dufer, that literally changed the course of my life. And so I see the audits function as how do we make sure that these services work, which for me starts with auditing the Oregon Employment Department, finding out what went wrong, not only what went wrong in 2020, 
But what went wrong in previous years when audits that had already made recommendations were not followed? What mm-hmm. happened? How do we make sure that recommendations that come from the Secretary of State's office are actually followed through? And as I mentioned before, auditing our emergency response. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean COVID. I also mean the wildfires. You have folks down in Southern Oregon who didn't even get an emergency evacuation order from any kind of official um, you know, emergency system. They maybe heard neighbors talking or running outside their doors. They had a knock on their door from a neighbor. We need to make sure that when we're in an emergency, whether it's a pandemic or a wildfire, that there aren't any Oregonians who are left behind. And that's a, something that the audit function can do. Mm. So one of the realities as, as voters look at their voters pamphlet is they see big vision from candidates and sometimes they aren't really clear how things are going to get done. Um, can you speak to like, what does it look like to get a big vision done within the Secretary of State's office? Well, I think that the next Secretary of State needs to have a track record of actually, you know, accomplishing legislation with, you know, with folks in the legislature. And that's why I'm proud to have served in both the House and the Senate and to have been working on those big issues. Like I talked about at the beginning, the Office of Small Business Assistance, automatic voter registration, national popular vote, prepaid postage, because while the Secretary of State is in the executive branch and she no longer has direct vote in the legislature. I certainly have a legislative affairs person. Uh, We would have a team working on things like campaign finance reform, um, just things that make government work better. And so the process is, you know, very similar to being a legislator. You come up with an idea, the Secretary of State does have the ability to actually request and draft bills to be put forward in the legislature. And then you build coalitions and you you make the argument and you find out what the concerns are from folks who oppose your ideas and you work out differences or you, you know, find your coalition, even, you know, if those differences are not things that, that you think will make the bill better then you find your, your 16 votes in the Senate and your 31 votes in the House. And I think it's important to have somebody that has a history of getting things done in the legislature to actually accomplish those uh, those big ideas that we want to mm-hmm. keep Oregon moving forward. Yeah. So folks are looking again at that at their election um, guidebook. What's at stake in this particular election between you and your competitor? At a high level, yeah, I'm the candidate that stands between a Trump delegate taking the reins in Oregon's oldest and first in the nation automatic voter registration, mm. or vote, vote by mail system. That's what's at stake here. Uh, my colleague and opponent. This fall, the Republican Kim Thatcher, you know, she was a Trump delegate in 2016 without, you know, appearing at Trump rallies, has been lukewarm in, in condemning the president, if you could even call it condemning, uh, kind of danced around the issues of whether or not he's wrong about voter fraud and vote by mail. Um, you know, I'm the candidate that's going to beat her and to make sure that she doesn't, as a Trump delegate, take the reins, that, that someone that is extremely anti, you know, anti-working people you know, anti-choice, you know, very, very, very extreme when it comes to gun safety legislation, opposing all of it, saying that she won't comply with the law when it comes to just simple things like background checks on gun sales. Um, I'm what stands between her and her politically gerrymandering Oregon to be the next Wisconsin, which in 2018 is the most egregious example where, you know, in the wave of 2018, the the Democrats won all the statewide offices. 
Uh, people voted for a majority of Democrats in the state legislature, and yet the legislature holds 36 of the 99 legislative seats in in Wisconsin because of political gerrymandering. And so there are oh, there is a lot at stake in this election um, to make sure that we don't have somebody who is strongly aligned with the president um, taking the reins in our redistricting and our electoral system here in Oregon. Mm. So in that voter guide, you introduced yourself as someone who grew up in rural Oregon. Rural Oregon. How has your life influenced who you are as a politician? Well, I know what it's like to feel disconnected from power. I grew up in Wasco County in Dufer, a town of about 550 people when I lived there. Uh, in the eventually moved to the bright lights and big city of the Dalles, which is a you know little over 10,000 people, and I have that sense of you know what it's like for a family to be hanging on by a thread. My dad was a single parent raising us by himself, and in fact, the summer before I started second grade, my dad took us on a camping trip. I remember it being long. I remember catching crawdads in Eight Mile Creek out near Dufer, I remember sleeping in a big family, you know, one tent. And it wasn't until decades later that my brothers told me what had really happened, that we'd been evicted from our house in the Dalles and that we had nowhere to go. And my dad didn't want us to know that we were homeless. And so he took us on a camping trip in Dufer while he tried to find us mm. a place to live. And that experience of living in a family that's hanging on by a thread is so formative and also living in a community that surrounded our family and made sure that thread didn't get cut. The folks that left groceries on our front porch, the, the family from our church that let us live with them after that camping trip uh, before we eventually landed in a, in a trailer in Dufer, that experience is formative. And that's what's led me as a civil rights attorney and an Oregon lawmaker to be fighting for other Oregon families that are hanging on by a thread and fighting for those communities and those services and those nonprofits uh, that surround families in their community to make sure that thread doesn't get cut. Mm. So this has been a, a long road, you know, over your lifetime, but also uh, through the primary and now the general election. One week to go. How are you focusing your campaign in the final week? We're just continuing to reach out to Oregonians. We have an incredible phone banking operation of folks that are listening to this. Emily have probably heard from our team either uh, by text messages, by phone. Uh, you know, we have a multi, multi-partisan uh, coalition out there. The labor movement um, is really behind me. Oregon's working people, which is not Democratic, which is uh, there are folks in the labor movement that are Democrats and Republicans and non-affiliated voters and all across the board. But they're reaching out to people and talking about, you know, my record as a lawmaker and how I've always stood with Oregon's working people, regardless of, uh, regardless of party affiliation, and um, that I've stood for working people in all 36 Oregon counties, uh, passing policies like raising the minimum wage and paid sick leave and paid family and medical leave and housing stability that benefit families in all 36 counties in Oregon. And so we're just continuing to reach out to people because folks have a really clear choice. They have a clear choice. Uh, between someone who has voted lockstep with her party to expand or to to restrict access to the ballot, Kim Thatcher, and someone who's led the fight to expand access to democracy, uh, somebody who has stayed silent when uh, conspiracy theories threaten democracy and public health, and somebody who's been willing to stand up and speak out and call out those lies. And somebody who's really supported by extreme right-wing organizations like the Oregon Right to Life, the anti-abortion 
uh, movement, the anti-vaccine movement, the uh, Oregon Firearms Federation, which is more extreme even than the NRA, um, and somebody who is supported by the folks that Oregonians have trusted for decades. I'm proud to have the support of, of Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden of the Oregon League of Conservation Voters, of the American Postal Workers Union, um, you know, the firefighters and the nurses and the teachers who are the heroes on the front lines every day in Oregon. And so Oregonians have a clear choice this election, and we are just getting that message out to let people know uh, that clear choice. Mm. There is so much at stake in this election, both in the race that we're talking about, the Secretary of State's race, but also the state legislature, local races, Senate races. Uh, just last night, a new Supreme Court justice sworn in, Amy Coney Barrett. What are you watching for sort of a, either in Oregon or across the country on election night beyond just your race? Well, I am watching uh, Measure 107, which I believe will pass with flying colors, which is to amend the Oregon Constitution to allow campaign finance limits. That's incredibly necessary. I supported that when it was Senate Joint Resolution 18 to send that to the ballot. And I am very happy to see that that is going to be passing across Oregon. But um, but the presidency does matter. In fact, the the very first thing that Dennis Richardson, uh, the former Republican secretary of state, did when he became secretary of state was he had to push back on the Trump administration's lies about, um, you know, people voting twice and all these crazy, uh, these crazy theories that Trump came up with to try to, you know, to describe how he lost the popular vote. And, you know, the newspapers that had previously endorsed Dennis Richardson have now endorsed me in this campaign because they see me as the person that will conduct this office in a nonpartisan way. And then I've been the only candidate been clear that I'm supporting Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, Senator Thatcher is constantly ducked the question of whether or not she's supporting Trump again. And yet mm-hmm. she shows up at Trump rallies and, you know, speaks in front of a Trump sign. And so she's certainly telling her base one thing and Oregonians something else. But I think the presidency does matter. And mm-hmm. and I do believe that, um, you know, really the future of our democracy is on the ballot as a mom of a second grader and an almost four year old. Um, I am I am nervous for what would happen in our country if somehow through a Supreme Court justice, um, through something going to the courts, through Trump suing, if he was able to 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 do essentially steal this election. I think that's very concerning for not only Oregonians, but all across the country. So I think that it's so important. I just talked to my cousin yesterday. He lives up in Seattle. Very cynical. He's a stand up comedian. He thinks all politicians are corrupt. He doesn't think anybody is ever worthy. He has never cast a vote in his life. He's in his mid-40s. And he told me yesterday, yeah, I voted for the first time. He voted split ticket up in Washington, uh, but he voted for Joe Biden because he said this, you know, this guy is the worst person um, that could possibly be leading our country during a pandemic mm-hmm. and what else we're going through. So I think that we're going to see record turnout. We're already seeing that. Um, but I'm really excited about um, all the ra- so many races across the country. But I would say, yeah, I have my eyes on the presidency for sure. Yeah. And as a civil rights attorney, question for you. So as, you're, as you've watched what's happened specifically with the judiciary over the last four years, do you still have faith in the judiciary to be that balance of power and to serve communities across the country with, with racial equity and justice? I have big concerns. I mean, you mm-hmm. certainly, um, the way that Mitch McConnell blocked President Obama from filling judicial vacancies as would have been in the normal course and then suddenly 
you know, rushing to allow President Trump to break records and fill more judicial vacancies. The fact that as of today, a third of the Supreme Court was appointed by a president who didn't win the popular vote, confirmed by a Senate that doesn't represent the majority of Americans. And now it's an unelected, you know, Supreme Court that is going to oversee major issues, um, you know, from gun safety to the um, you know, ACA to, uh, you know, reproductive health care decisions, voting rights. I mean, I think it's very concerning. I'm I'm doing some additional homeschooling with my son who's in second grade after he gets done with his online school. We do history, democracy and social justice with mom. Mm. Um, and he complained. He doesn't complain about it every day. I'll just put it that way. But he complains some days. But we sit down and and I'm reading a book with him called You Call This a Democracy. And it's kind of a, a kid's guide to elections. But it's really realistic. It's not just kind of, you know, schoolhouse rock. It's okay. Here's the electoral college. Does this seem fair? Here's, you know, the Senate that represents not a majority of the people. Does that seem fair? Here's what gerrymandering is in the U.S. House of Representatives. Does that seem fair? And it's really looking at it in a realistic way um, to try and prepare him for a democracy where, you know, his generation may need to really fight for us to still be the greatest democracy uh, in the world. Mm, I want to take that class. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Uh, where where do you find hope in the day-to-day in my kids i mean Mm -hmm. they are the ones that that remind me that you know there is a a future if we will fight for them in fact just the other day we we read a chapter on voter suppression i talked to my son about you know first when our country was founded only about six percent of people could vote you know white men over a certain age who own property and paid taxes and then how, you know, evolved into, you know, people, more and more people earning the right to vote. And, and then we read a chapter on voter suppression. I talked to him about how even today, you know, there, people can basically predict, oh, this entire group of people probably won't support me. So I'm going to make it harder for them to vote. And a day later, we were driving somewhere in the car and he was in the back seat and he goes, mom, I was thinking about voter suppression. And I said, (laughs) yeah. And he said, wouldn't it be easier to just help those groups of people then make it harder for them to vote if you just help them and make life better for them then they'll vote for you and you don't have to try to suppress their votes and i'm just i'm sitting in my car going there it is out of the mouth of babe and so (laughs) you know that's what gives me hope when we give you know kids or our family i mean my my cousin up in seattle having never voted in his you know 45 years and to say you know what i'm voting this time there are signs of hope if we look for them and um, and I think we need to be lifting up those stories uh, more than we're lifting up the scary stories that that make us feel despair. Yeah, totally agree. You can almost see the finish line one more week. How can listeners support your campaign in this last week? Well, we have got phone banking shifts going on every day. Uh, we are raising grassroots money every day. ShamiaForOregon.com is the website. Um, you know, we've got people delivering lawn signs. Any talent that people have, we can find a place for you. Um, we can, uh, you know, we have people walk in the vote to ver- in various communities. Um, you know, even just sharing social media, um, social media posts is, is very, very helpful. But I would say uh, the most important thing that folks can do is I'm asking for their votes. Um, either in November or sometime this week, whenever they sit down to safely vote from home here in Oregon. The first and most important thing I'll ask all your listeners for uh, is the honor of having their vote this year. And then beyond that, um, anything, any talent that they have, if they jump on ShamiaForOregon.com, we will find a place for them. 
excellent. And and you have a new TikTok account, I hear. Yes, we do. We just, I just, I, you know, I've been wanting something like that for so long. And we got somebody come on that just gave us, we did the shoe challenge using different shoes as a way to describe the different roles of the Secretary of State. We've done a lot of fun social media. I've, I sat down with my kids a couple months ago and tried to explain the difference between absentee voting and vote by mail, to which, of course, my kids kept saying, Mom, that's the same thing. And I kept re-explaining <laughs> it. And they would say, that's the same thing. What are you talking about? That's the same thing. And then we just did a big, what we call the Balderdash series of explaining to my kids the different roles of the Secretary of State, Audits Division, State Land Boards. But I first give my eight-year-old and my almost four-year-old a crack at guessing what things are. Um, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty cute series if folks jump on our Facebook or Instagram or, um, or, or Twitter page. Shamia Fagan running for Secretary of State. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Emily. X-ray. Thanks to Senator Fagan for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. What are your election night plans? X-Ray is partnering with Portland Forward to host election night results live from 7 to 9 p.m. in the Portland area on 107.1 and 91.1 FM, as well as on X-Ray's YouTube page. We'd love to see you there. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.